in prayer. Father, we have just sung that we desire to praise your great name. To lift a joyful song before you, our rock, our redeemer, the one who has set us in Christ. But Father, we must readily confess before you that as we look back on this week, there have been moments where we have not lived a life that praises the great glory that you have. There have been frustrations that have welled up within us and caused us to react in ways that do not resemble the love and the glory of your Son. There have been thoughts that have entered our minds that have taken us far from reveling and feasting upon the glory of Christ and tempted us and turned our gaze away to lesser things. And so, Father, we have sung that we rejoice to praise you, but yet, Lord, as we look at our lives, so often we do not. But, Father, we still come before you because you do not see our sin, you see Christ's righteousness. We come before you because our hope is placed not in our performance of the law, but in Christ's completion of the law. And that all the glory, all the righteousness that we have is nothing compared to the glory and righteousness of your beloved Son. And you, in your magnificent grace, have placed us in Him before the foundation of the world. So that we can say, as David said, that from of old you have dealt with us according to your loving kindness, according to your steadfast love. And so, Father, as we come into your presence today and we recognize our fallenness, our sinfulness, as we look to Christ, Lord, by your grace, may your word be the mirror that shows us those areas in which we do not marvel in and that we do not reflect the glory of Christ. May your spirit take your word, apply it to our hearts and lives, and change us, Father, into the glorious image of your Son. So that we will walk out of this place today different than when we first came in. Quiet our hearts. Focus our minds upon your word today. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And we are going to be looking at verses 11 and 12 this morning. We had spent several weeks looking at the pilgrim's home, where it is that we find ourselves as at home in this world. We are strangers and foreigners. We're exiles. We don't belong here. But that does not mean that God has left us alone. But he has given us 
his son, the presence of his son who was with us always. And so Peter focuses on that in verse 4 of chapter 2. We come to him. We find our home with Christ. And then we saw, secondly, that our home is with Christ's people. That we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation or a holy ethnos. A people that God has chosen and brought together for his own possession. And then we looked at, at the end of last week, we looked at why Christ has done this. Why has God taken us and made us a people? And he does this so that, as we see at the end of verse 9, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the natural question then that as we've been continuing through Peter's argument in the book in his, his letter in 1 Peter is, well, how do we do this? How do we go about living in such a way that we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light? How do we take this command and then practically live it out in our everyday lives? And so it's not as though Peter doesn't leave us with a answer to that question. He guides us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verses 11 and verse 12. And so look with me as we see what Peter says in verse 11 and verse 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, and just, just a quick aside, that is the way we are to view our home with God's people. We are to view them with love. It's interesting that Peter builds upon what God has done in saving us, and then his response to those that are this chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession, Peter looks and he says, I love that. I think it's important for us to recognize our love for others is not based in them. All right? Let's be honest. We can be pretty unlovable people. And particularly among the church and among God's people, we can be backbiting, we can be gossips, we can think all sorts of terrible things about each other. But does that change the way that God views us in Christ? No, He loves us eternally in Christ. So we are to love the things that God loves, right? And God loves His people. So what should we do with each other? Love each other. And Peter exhibits that by calling them beloved. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from... Now, we're waiting for him to say some sort of action. That's not where he goes first. Abstain from what? The passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And then he talks about conduct. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter turns from speaking about our home to now discussing the pilgrim's conduct. How are we to live? What should it look like? How should we as pilgrims, as strangers and foreigners, as exiles in this world, what should our conduct be? I think it's 
interesting. We, there, there, I saw in the news reports recently that the queen celebrated her diamond jubilee. So if I'm remembering correctly, that's 75 years on the throne. That's a long time to be a reigning monarch. I think more than any, more than any monarch in English history. I might be wrong about that. I'm not sure. Um, but it's interesting as, the, as you watch these news programs and they've got the queen out there and, and everyone's, you know, all dressed up a certain way. They, they interact with people a certain way. There are certain protocols that the royal family has to follow. There are certain things they can and cannot do, down to the way that they button their jackets, the way that the ladies wear their, their hats and stuff. And, of course, it was comical as this coverage was going on that uh, I think the, the youngest son or the middle son of uh, Prince William and Kate was, like, making faces at his mother and not acting like the way that the royal was supposed to do. But there was a, a, pr- there's a protocol that members of the royal family are to follow, and that displays or exhibits to the world around them that they are a part of that family. It shows who they are. Now, part of that is for them to build or to maintain a legacy. And in reality, everyone is living for a legacy. We're living to to display something So that when people think about us, their thoughts think about a certain thing or a certain aspect about us. See, the problem is is that we conduct ourselves so often to build our own legacy. To make it so that we are the ones who are promoted. Our glory is the one that is seen. And what has Peter told us exiles and foreigners Whose glory do we live for? To proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His, not just His light, but what kind of light is it? It's marvelous light. So, what is Peter telling us here in verse 11 and verse 12? What should be the the tone? What should be the focus of our conduct here on this world? We must conduct Ourselves in this world, our conduct must seek the glory of God above all other things. And so Peter points us to three things in this passage in verses 11 and 12 that help us to understand how we do that. The first is that the pilgrim's conduct is dependent on God's grace. The pilgrim's conduct is dependent upon God's grace. You must depend on God's grace for your conduct to reflect the glory of Christ. Now, where do we see this? Well, we see, first of all, that God's grace is the thing that produces pilgrims. God's grace produces pilgrims. As Peter is moving now from describing our home in this world, he now turns to speaking about how we have been made a people, and he reminds us that we are sojourners and exiles. He is reminding us then as sojourners and exiles that our conduct is to be such that we are sojourners and exiles, strangers and exiles. Now, I think it's important to note the order in which this happens because Every other man-focused, man-made religion flips this. 
it says that we make ourselves to be strangers through our conduct. That's what every other religion on this earth tells us. So it goes straight for the way we live our lives. And we make ourselves different in this world by pursuing living differently. And this often comes in the form of a list of do's and don'ts. A list of of legalistic requirements upon us. You know, in our day and age, it's be kind to everybody, follow the golden rule, um, you know, be honest, be, be trustworthy. I mean, these are sort of the modern day um, ways in which the world says this is how you live differently than the rest of the world. Live differently, and then you will be differently. But that is not what Peter points us to. He already assumes that we have been made strangers and exiles. He doesn't flip this. It is not that our conduct creates us or makes us to be his chosen people. Rather, his choosing of us then changes our conduct. The reality of who we have been made in Christ is the very thing that constrains and directs our conduct here on earth. And God does this purely out of his grace. Why don't we fit in this world? Because God has graciously saved us in Jesus Christ. That's why we are strangers and foreigners. So there is often a temptation when we come across commandments in the Scriptures telling us how to live our lives to think, well, this is what makes me acceptable before God. And Peter excludes that. No. You are, by God's grace, sojourners and exiles. I mean, Jesus points to this in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, he says this very well-known statement about how we identify other believers. And how do we see other believers? You recognize them by their what? Fruits. That's what he says. You will recognize them. You'll recognize true believers by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Or we could put in the, the Pittsburghese jagger bushes. Are figs from thistles? And then notice what it is that determines the fruit. Every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus is making a very clear statement that the fruit is not what makes the tree. The tree is what makes the fruit. And so we must be transformed by God's grace to take the disease of sin, the unhealthiness that's within us, by God's grace taken out, so that then we can be a tree that is healthy and that can bear good fruit. I mean, imagine if I were to, to take... So when we were down in South Carolina a couple weeks ago, we, we stopped at this fruit stand on the side of the road called Abbott's, and they sell peaches. Um, now, apparently, I've learned that this is way too early to buy peaches. We spend a lot of money for these peaches. They smell delicious, and they're hard as rock, and they taste terrible. So I'm very disappointed in these peaches. 
But imagine if I were to take this basket of peaches that I got and, and I were to go out here and to tape them onto this maple tree out here. Would that make the maple tree a peach tree because I taped fruit on it? No. Then why do we so often think that we make ourselves Christians by taping on good works to our lives? Now, if we are going to have conduct that is in accordance with being sojourners and exiles, it must be done by the transformative power of God's grace. We are sojourners and exiles, and we saw previously that this happened through God's grace, choosing us, giving us new life according to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what Peter here is telling us to do is act like pilgrims and sojourners. Now here's the reverse problem for those that often are gen genuinely good trees. We like to not tape on the fruits of the Spirit and the fruit of Christ, but we like to tape on the works of the flesh. We tend to act not like we are, don't belong here, but we tend to act like we do belong here. And so Peter is challenging his readers, both in the first century and us today in the 21st century, to act like what God has made us by His grace. Now, how do we do this? Well, we must also depend upon the very grace that made us and produced us as pilgrims, that same grace empowers us to be pilgrims. God's grace does not simply call us out of the world and place us as strangers and foreigners and then say, all right, figure it out. He doesn't send us here and, and provide for us the grace that changes us and then not provide any direction for how our conduct is to be done in this world. In fact, Peter's going to give some very pointed applications, some very pointed commands later on in this, pa in this passage. He's, he's going to step on toes. I mean, next week, be prepared to get your toes stepped on, particularly as it relates to how we view the authorities that are placed over us. This is a bit of a, a lightning point in our day and age. How should we relate to wicked rulers? Well, what does Peter say? And we'll, I don't want to get ahead of myself. But Peter gives some very strong commands to us. He's going to step on our toes. Now, here, here's the thing. Even when, when I, there are times where I will read things from God's word, and I'm like, man, I really don't want to do that. That's my flesh welling up within me. So how in the world can I do that? And I have to look not within myself, but I have to look to Christ. I have to look to His grace. In fact, Jesus points this out in John 15, 4. To produce fruit, Christ is the vine, we are the branches. How do we produce fruit? We abide in who? In Him. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you what? Abide in me. So as Peter draws attention to us, to, draws our attention to the fact that we are sojourners and exiles, it is all 
dependent upon the grace of God. We are sojourners and exiles by His sovereign grace poured out to us in Jesus Christ, and we conduct ourselves as sojourners and exiles by the very grace of God that is given us as we abide in Christ. This is key. It's essential to conducting ourselves as pilgrims in this world. It's essential that we continue to do what he told us to do in verse 4, to come to him, to find our home with Christ. That's what it means to abide in Christ. You know, you talk about where your home is. You say that that's the place where you what? Live. And if our home is in Jesus, then that is the place, that is the person, that is where we must go to live the pilgrim life. So what does this look like now? We see, secondly, depending upon God's grace, the pilgrim's conduct is directed by right passions. The pilgrim's grace is directed by right passions. The grace of God begins by changing the things that we desire. And Peter, there's there's just an interesting interplay here as we depend upon the grace of God, yet he is giving us a direct command to change our desires. So there is is a, a level of Man's, of God's grace and man's responsibility in here. And we have to, we struggle with that. How does that work? How do we reconcile that? And Peter, it's no conflict for him. God's grace has made you this way, so act it. He gives us the command and calls us to, as he says here in verse 11, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our souls. Now again, I pointed this out as we read this. Our, our general expectation is that God would tell us what to do, what steps to do. So we would expect like a, a, a virtue list that Paul often gives. Abstain from fornication and, and, and don't, you know, don't go into lying and deceiving and, and you know, conduct yourselves in, the, in, in a particular set of ways so that we can say, well, okay, I know what to do and what not to do. And And our flesh likes that because it's easy for us. It's the easier road because we can do these things and still harbor within our hearts passions that are contrary to what it means to be a pilgrim. But what does Peter say? What's the first thing that has to change about us so that we conduct ourselves correctly? It's our passions. Our passions must change. Peter wants us to have not just obedience, but heartfelt obedience. And so he talks about the dangers of fleshly passions. Because the reality is we all still live with the old man. We all still live with a sinful nature that wells up within us, and it's constantly tugging at us, pulling us away from the truth of what we are in Christ. He speaks of these dangerous fleshly passions. 
He speaks of how they wage war against our soul. There's an example of this war and how powerful fleshly passions can be in the Gospels in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, there's this, this man, a ruler, a rich young ruler, who comes to Christ and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, of course, comes to him and he tries to focus him on whom he's talking to. Why are you calling me good? There's no one who is good except God alone. So he's, he's pointing him and says, he's not denying the fact that Christ is good. He is good. And then he goes in to say, well, how is God's goodness exhibited in the law? What does goodness look like? You know the commandments. What are they? And here we get, here we get the list. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And so this guy's like, all right, guess what? All these I have kept from my youth. I've been able to tick off the things. I'm, I'm doing pretty good, right? When Jesus heard this, so it's interesting that as this man is standing before the only one who is good, Christ, he points to himself as good. Just, just a quick aside, legalism is all about pride and self-righteousness. Just like this guy. I'm, I'm good. I've done it. And Jesus hears this, and he's got to be shaking his head at this point. He says to him, all right, there's one thing you lack. And so he's, he's going to go not after his conduct, but after his passion. You still lack one thing. All right, I want you to take everything that you have, sell it, distribute it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then you need to come and follow me. Pretty clear direction, right? What does the man do? When he heard these things, he became what? Very sad or extremely sorrowful. Why? Because he was extremely rich. You see what happens and how dangerous fleshly passions are? Jesus goes on later on in this passage, and he essentially says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because his heart loves his riches more than Christ. That is how dangerous fleshly passions are. They drive us away from Christ. And so Peter is warning us against them. Abstain from them. Abstain from these passions of the flesh, which he speaks of as waging war against your soul. Now, the passions of the flesh do this covertly because they promise delight and joy and, and pleasure in indulging the passions of the flesh. And in fact, do the passions of the flesh provide joy and, and pleasure 
for a season. But that season is quickly gone. And so Peter is saying these things are waging war against your soul. Now, what exactly is in context Peter referring to? What are fleshly passions? And of course, we could hash this out and we could go through the scriptures and and look at different ways that this term is used. But I think it's just simple enough for us to keep it with what Peter's been saying. We've been chosen as a royal race, to, or as, as chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, for what purpose? That we may proclaim the excellencies of Christ as we marvel at his glorious light. So, what are the passions of our flesh that wage war against us? Anything that takes us from marveling at God's glory and seeking something else. That is the passion of the flesh. John Piper notes here, passions of the flesh are any passions that stop you from marveling most in the light of God. So that can mean certainly the big sins that we think of, fornication and adultery and and thieving and murder. Of course, that includes that. But can it include respectable things? like our careers, our possessions. We saw that with the rich young ruler. Anything that detracts us from marveling most in the light of God is a passion that is warring against our souls. It dulls our perception of the light of God. These passions loom larger in our thoughts than God does. They turn us away from His light to shrink back into the shadows of the darkness of this world. That's the passions that wage war against our souls. Now, when something wages war, is that a, you know, like a, like a, you know, not, not like a really big deal? When something's waging war, what is it doing? It is vicious. It's damaging. It's destructive. It tears down the things of our lives. And that's what these passions are doing. War is destructive. And so Peter is telling us, don't desire the things that destroy you. Now, this is sort of obvious if we go back to the garden. What was the promise to Adam and Eve, if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely what? Die. Is there anything more destructive than death? No. And so the devil comes along and he lies. He says, you won't die. He seeks to to soften the destructive nature of the desires of the flesh. And Peter is saying, look, these things are waging war against your soul. See, the devil wants us to remain fulfilled in respectable marveling at anything but Jesus Christ and the glory of God found in him. That's why he's significantly attacked God's people with idolatry. I mean, if you think about the first account of idolatry among God's people, 
Joshua makes this golden calf, and he says, this is Yahweh. This is your God. And they, they bow down and worship it. They were, in their minds, worshiping Yahweh, but they were not worshiping the true God. They were worshiping a God that they had made. And how often do we worship gods of our own imaginations rather than the God that is revealed in Scripture? How often do we set up idols in our lives? You know, this, there's a reason why Israel's story is given to us in the Old Testament because guess who we are very much like? Israel. What did they start doing? Well, we'll worship God, but we'll also worship these other gods. We want to be like the nations around us. We don't want to be different. We want to be the same. The same thing's going on here with what Peter's telling us. You're strangers. You're exiles. Act like it. And you act like it first in directing your desires, your passions towards God alone and marveling in Him, wanting Him more than anything else. And when you want anything more than God, you're letting those passions wage war and win the war against your soul. So what are we to do? If these passions are so destructive and so dangerous, what are we to do? Well, we are to abstain from them. We have the imperative of abstaining. Peter says these passions are waging war against your soul. He warns us against them. So what's his command? Abstain from them. Peter is clear. We do not have the same passions as the rest of the world. We do not want the same things the world wants. We do not marvel at the same things the world marvels at. And Peter is passionate about this. Notice what he says in verse 11, I urge you. He is pleading with his readers, abstain from these dangerous, destructive passions. The term abstain, it means to stay away from, to keep our distance from, to refrain from, or to not get close to. When, this is so important for us to recognize because when we live the Christian life by a set of rules, what is our temptation? We want to get as close to the line of that rule as we can without going over, right? That's how we think. Well, I'm not... I'm not fully breaking what God has said here. And we justify all sorts of things in our minds that way. The question is not how close to the line of our conduct or our actions can we get without getting over. Peter is saying, look, your passions aren't even supposed to get close to that. Stay away from letting your mind and your desires go that way. That's what Peter is telling us to do. Peter is saying that before we start about the actual actions and behaviors of pilgrims, we need to have a mindset so that our passions never get anywhere near to anything, to desiring anything lesser than the glory of God. Now, I think it's important to note here that Peter is holding his audience responsible for their feelings, the things that you desire. We have a mindset in our day and age that, well, I can't help how I feel. 
I was born this way. My desires are what they are. And so we've, I think, even in the church, we sort of bought into this idea that, well, I, I, don't, I can't control how I feel. And Peter is saying, abstain from certain feelings. Don't get close to even thinking that you can feel a certain way. We are freed to marvel in the glory of God. So do it. And abstain from marveling in lesser things. This is how we begin walking the pilgrim life. Abstaining from passions, fleshly passions, that war against our souls. This is why the greatest commandment, the commandment upon which all the law and the prophets hang, is it about conduct or is it about passion? And it's about passion. He said to them, you shall what? Love. The Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend everything else. And so Peter is doing what God did with Israel when he gave them the law. What Jesus did when he walked on the earth. And by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's reminding us that our passions must be focused on Christ alone. He must be the great thing that we delight in. His glory must be the great thing that we marvel in. And so the question that we're all faced with today is, where are our passions? Where are your passions this morning? What do you marvel in the most? It's very easy to marvel in so many other things. And that is a war waged against us to destroy us. We need to marvel in the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Thirdly, the pilgrim's conduct is displayed Finally, for the glory of God. See, I think we need to understand that idolatry is not just damaging to ourselves. It's also damaging to the world around us. Notice what he says in verse 12. Keep your conduct among who? The Gentiles. Keep it honorable. Now, he uses the term Gentile here, and we, we think, well, you know, unless I'm a Jew, I guess I'm a Gentile. So is he talking about just Gentiles? You have to realize that Peter, who has now applied the covenant promises of God to Israel, to the church, is now calling upon the church to recognize that they are the true people of God. They are spiritual Israel, and so the Gentiles then are everyone outside of Christ. So what are we to do to those that are outside of Christ. Well, our conduct must be displayed for the glory of God. And we have to realize that our conduct is first displayed to unbelievers. 
You know, there can be a temptation to some extent for our best behavior to be on Sunday mornings, right? Well, I've got to make sure I'm, I'm there in plenty of time, get my seat, make sure I'm wearing what I need to wear, make sure that pastor sees that I'm here because, you know, I might get a call throughout the week, where have you been? You know, I, I, need to, I, need to, I need to be on my best behavior. I'm, I'm going to make sure that my, my car isn't thumping that terrible music when I pull in the driveway. I'm going to bridle my tongue, and so the way that I talk and act throughout the rest of the week is going to be different when I'm here. That's the way we think we put on our best behavior on Sunday mornings. Now, please understand, I'm not saying to stop that, all right? But I am saying our behavior needs to be Christ-like all the time, not just on Sundays. In fact, in some degree, what Peter is saying is keep your conduct, focus on your best behavior in front of the world. It needs to be honorable among them. To some degree, we need to put on our best face every day. And really, it's not about putting on faces. It's about letting the grace of God constrain who we are. So I don't want to, I'm not trying to promote hypocrisy here. Please understand that. But what I am trying to say is our conduct, which is driven by our passions, is displayed before the world. We ought not to let our guard down among unbelievers. Our conduct must continue to be constrained by the grace of God. When we let loose and indulge in sinful activity among those that aren't among Christ, our testimony, the the reality that we are strangers and exiles and pilgrims, goes out the window. How can you be a stranger and an exile if you're acting just like us? We shouldn't fit in, and that should be obvious to the world. So obvious that they want to kill us. That's actually what Peter is going to argue later on. We're going to be so different that it offends their sensibilities and drives us for them to call evil good and good evil. So our conduct is displayed to unbelievers. It's displayed in honorable conduct. The term that he refers to here uses as honorable. It refers to the highest level or standard of behavior. It's to be above reproach. It means we don't take shortcuts. It means that we don't deceive. We don't take the easy way out if, the, if that way causes us to compromise on what is required of us. You know, this... I know how this can, this can so subtly work in the workplace. You have a manager who says, I want you to follow this process in doing whatever it is. And the process is idiotic. You ever have a manager tell you to do something that just didn't make sense? Yeah. And so we, along with all of our other coworkers, we say, eh, They don't know what they're talking about. I'm just going to do things whose way? My way. Now, I'm not saying that you don't go to your manager and say, probably it's not best to say you're being an idiot. It's probably nicer to say, let me provide an alternative means of getting this done. But so often in the workplace, it can be, well, just don't listen to them. 
And that is not having our conduct being done in such a way that it's honorable among them. They see that. And you know what? Your co-workers see that. They see whether or not you're willing to act differently than them or to just go along with the crowd. That's just one illustration. You can go on and on with different ways. Now, why does Peter call us to do this? So that when, he says in verse 12, when they speak against us as evildoers, they'll recognize that they'll see the good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, the the world's watching our conduct. Peter is giving an imperative of importance on upright conduct. Because the world will speak against us as evildoers. They will, as Isaiah speaks of, call evil good and good evil. They'll put darkness for light and light for darkness. They'll put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The world is is going to do this. Are they not already doing this? So, so here's what Peter's saying. Let their evil speaking against you be that which befits the glory of Christ. Let them speak evil of Christ and not have a legitimate gripe against you that you're acting wrongfully. In other words, they're going to have a double standard. Now, everyone hates a double standard, right? That's not fair. Here's a newsflash. The world is not going to treat God's people fairly. And so Peter is saying, look, we are in this world, so our conduct must be above board. We're not to be living like them. We're to be different. He's going to go on later on in this passage and talk about we cannot claim to be persecuted if we're being judged for evil that we actually did. Just because we claim the name of Christ, it does not make us then somehow above the law. And frankly, in recent years, this has been displayed over and over again that churches, Baptist churches even recently, have thought that they're above the law in the way they handle sexual abuse in the church, brushing things underneath the rug, and and trying to, for the sake of their testimony, not report sinful activity. That's shameful. And so Peter is saying, look, you're not being, the church is not being persecuted when it's breaking the law, when it's a just and right law. Now, there are times where it is appropriate for us to not submit when they call us to do that which is evil or to not do that which God has commanded, but that is a very narrow definition. And it certainly does not include allowing abuse to be perpetuated in the church. That's not persecution when the, when the law comes against us for the things that we have justly done wrong. And so Peter is saying our conduct needs to be honorable. Why? So that we can be upright citizens in this world? Is, is that what he's driving at? No. We see finally that this is displayed through the vindication of, of the glory of God. And I love how Peter comes full circle. 
What is the thing that we are to be most passionate about in our lives? What is our passion to be driven towards? The glory of Christ in the glory of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The end goal of our honorable conduct is to see vindication. Now, not primarily our own vindication, but the vindication of the glory of Jesus Christ. Peter draws upon what Jesus says. Now, again, look at verse 12. When they speak against you as evildoers, what they will notice is your good deeds. And when they see your good deeds, these people who are calling evil good and good evil, guess what they actually end up doing? Glorifying God. And that's what Jesus talks about. In the same way, we're to let our light shine before others so that they can see our good works and give glory to our Father, which is in heaven. If we are to be proclaiming the excellencies of the light of Christ, then we proclaim that not merely verbally, but also in our conduct. We must live as children of light. This is what Paul says. At one time we were in the darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. So how are we to walk? Walk as children of Light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Do you see how what Jesus says and what Paul says and what Peter is saying here is exactly the same? You think God is trying to say something to us? Live as a pilgrim. Not as someone who's in this world. We do this so that those who see these good works will glorify God on the day of visitation. Our hope is that our proclamation of the light verbally and with a life that backs that up would be received by some who see and hear our words and works. that they would hear the call to Christ and turn to Him by God's grace so that on that final day of vindication, they will with us lift their voices and say, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive honor and glory and praise and power for He made from every tribe, kingdom, tongue, and nations a people to glorify Him. That's the glory of taking our message of the glory of Christ and living the, for the glory of Christ so that others would be transformed to live for the glory of Christ. John Piper says that missions exists because worship doesn't. How true that is. Our goal is to have people be worshiping God as we are. But regardless, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, that God has highly exalted Christ. And He's bestowed upon Him a name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, how many knees should bow? Every knee should bow. 
in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is a day of vindication that is coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is the glory of God and it will glorify the Father to no end. So let me ask you today, as Peter is calling us here, how is your conduct? What's your greatest passion? Peter calls us, those of us who have been captivated by God's grace, to draw upon that same grace to live a life that desires the glory of God above all things. Directing our passions away from fleshly desires that wage war on our souls and conducting ourselves honorably among the world so that the only fault they can find with us is the glory of God and our lives lived for that glory. Is that your life here today? By God's grace, may He the great vine dresser, prune away the areas in our life where we continue to live for the passions of the flesh. And may we live for His glory above all things. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for what Peter has written here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Father, he's warning us, you're warning us through Peter to abstain from these damaging fleshly desires. By your grace, may we do that. And to conduct ourselves before the world honorably so that they see our lives live for your glory. Oh, Father. Father, we so often fail at this. By your grace, the ministry of your spirit in our hearts today, may we truly live lives that no matter whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we would do everything to your glory. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood.